You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Amen. And good morning. It's good to see each and every one of you as we gather on this day to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, as we just sang, we do live in a broken world. And again, we have great hope that Christ not only has come, but he has conquered over sin, conquered over death, that he has risen from the grave. And he indeed is worthy of all blessing, honor, and glory that comes from our lips. You are with us here this morning. Let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. If you are just kind of joining in or visiting with us today, we are currently finding ourselves in this series on the means of grace, on what it means to behold Christ through these spiritual practices that the Lord has given us to help sustain us in the faith and sanctify us in Christ. And so today we find ourselves coming to the means of prayer the means of prayer. We've talked the last two weeks about the means of reading God's word and meditating on God's word. Last week from Psalm 1, today we focus on the means of grace called prayer. So let's look to Matthew chapter 6, which is by far Jesus's most extensive teaching on this means of grace called prayer. So let's read God's word together. I'll pray for us and then we will begin together. Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather this morning, Lord, we are grateful for the privilege and the gift of prayer. Lord, that we can call out to you as our Father. Lord, because of the remarkable realities of what it means for us as your children to be united to Christ by faith. Lord, I pray that you would help stir within us As your people, Lord, a desire to commune with you in prayer, to know you intimately as a friend and lover of our souls. And Lord, that we would not forsake this gift of prayer, 
that we would take it up rightly with the right posture, with the right aim, and Lord, that you would help us to have our prayer life enriched as we focus upon your word and learn from it this day. Lord, may you do far more than we could imagine or think as your word is preached. May you save the lost. May you build up your church. All for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, prayer is like breathing for the Christian. If scripture, as we've talked about these last couple weeks, is the the bread of the word by which the Christian feasts day after day for his nourishment and strength, prayer is the oxygen that fills our spiritual lungs. The Christian in prayer exhales his, his needs, his burdens that are upon his heart, and we inhale by prayer the sustaining and sanctifying grace of God as we commune with him. So for the Christian, prayer is, in some ways, instinctive. It, it just comes to us. It's part of what it means to be born again is we have this inclination in our souls to raise up our voice and call out to God. A Christian, in some ways, doesn't need to be taught to pray. To do so would be like teaching a baby how to cry. It's instinctive. But yet, I think most of us would say we have a lot to learn about prayer, about what it means to breathe in a healthy way in the Christian life through the means of grace called prayer. So ask yourself a question. How long could you live without oxygen? Not very long. How long can you in the Christian life live without prayer? Some of you are trying to find out. See, throughout this series, we have learned that the the means of grace are these vital habits by which God sustains us in Christ and sanctifies us as his people. And so the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the intake of the word of God, feasting upon it through reading it and meditating upon it. However, today we now turn to the means of prayer. Now, the the neglect of prayer in our lives is a huge crisis in the church today. Think if you and I, if we take that honest, hard audit, this look at our lives, at our current habit of prayer, I think all of us would marvel that the Lord has sustained us so long in Christ, even though we've neglected it. The spiritual dryness, though, that we feel, the shallowness, that we sense, the superficiality that we feel in our relationship with God, this is, this is all symptoms of this dangerous side effect of our lack of prayer. For many of us, our, our prayer life, if it exists at all, is, is mostly formal, perhaps list-driven, and feels, dare we say it, sort of boring if we think of it. But yet, think about it. How how insane is it to think of prayer as something boring? How can conversing with our infinite God, who is splendid in holiness, engulfed in radiance, and beautified by his perfect love, how can that God be boring? How could communing with him in prayer feel boring to us? 
What's, what's wrong with our hearts? There, there has to be something wrong in the way we approach prayer, in the way we think of prayer. We, in so many ways, need to relearn how to breathe. Today, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 13. This is Jesus' teaching here in Matthew's gospel on prayer. Now, as we do this, I do not want to bludgeon you with guilt over your prayerlessness. Although that's something pastors could certainly do, right? But I do want you to see, though, that our prayerlessness is a big problem. It's symptomatic that there's something wrong in our hearts and our relationship with the Lord. And so instead of just beating you up over your prayerlessness, I, I want to today woo you, seduce you, if you will, invite you to breathe again to take up this means of grace that is a gift from God. So scriptural meditation, as we talked about last week, is a big part of what it means to intake the word. Now, if you remember, if you were around last week, I want to look to Jesus's teaching in such a way that I want to instruct you on a prayer method that is fueled by scriptural meditation. In fact, so many, one of the reasons why I think prayer feels boring to us is that we just haven't been taught in terms of how the Word of God and prayer go together. And meditation, of course, on Scripture, like the man from Psalm 1, is the link so often ignored between our Bible reading and our prayer. So I want to instruct you on this method fueled by meditation of Scripture that I hope will enliven and enrich your personal, and private prayer life. Remember, scriptural meditation is like preheating our hearts for prayer. So when we don't desire to pray, as so many of us often feel, meditation on God's word stirs within us a desire to do so. So here's the the sermon summary. Let your meditation on scripture ignite your heart to the means of prayer. Let your meditation on Scripture ignite your heart to the means of prayer. Now, as we do this this morning, as we work through Matthew 6, we're going to first look at the aim of prayer. Second, we'll consider the model for prayer. And third, we'll discuss the practice of prayer. So aim, model, practice. That's kind of where we're going this morning as we look to Matthew 6. Let's first consider the aim, the aim of prayer. Now, we find ourselves here today right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, this famous teaching discourse in Matthew's Gospel, Matthews 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus preaches this famous sermon. Now, Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching us about the the nature of life in his kingdom, the ethics of his kingdom, and what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. Now, we're coming right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount here today, right in Matthew chapter 6. What's going on in Matthew chapter 6? Well, if you have your Bible, look around at the surrounding context. Jesus is in the middle of critiquing the hypocritical religious practices of his day, addressing the issues of giving, prayer, and fasting. Jesus is taking each one, one at a time, showing us the sort of hypocritical way that these means of grace are being employed by the Israelites, 
by the religious leaders. And here today we find ourselves in Matthew 6, chapter verse 5, dealing with the issue of prayer specifically. So Jesus, as he begins to teach us on prayer, aims to, to help us understand the purpose of prayer, and he does so by critiquing the faulty aims of the hypocrites who take up prayer. So the hypocrites pray. Why do they pray? Well, Jesus makes it clear in the text. They pray for attention. They pray for attention. Now, whose attention? Not the Lord's attention, but the attention of their fellow men. What matters most to them, as Jesus describes them, is that, they, that others see them and hear their prayers. And as they're praying in the synagogues and in the street corners, as Jesus describes, they're, they're not praying in order to please the Lord. They're praying to impress other people. That's huge. Pride is what's leading them to prayer, not love for God. Pride is. They're hoping that by my public prayers, praying in the synagogue, praying in the street corners, that other people hearing me speak with such eloquence, prayer language out loud at the top of my lungs, that they might look at me and say, wow, look at that guy. Look at how much this dude loves God. He's standing in the street corner, praying out loud, arms stretched up into heaven. He must love the Lord. He's just pleading his heart to God. Man, I wished I prayed like that guy. That's what they were hoping people would think and feel as they heard their public prayers. It's all about getting attention and praise from other people. Now, here's an important lesson about all of these means of grace that we're going to be talking about throughout this series. Any of these means of grace, and maybe particularly the, the means of prayer, all of them can be perverted and abused by religious hypocrisy. It's, it's just the reality of the, the danger in taking them up. You can take them up and use them for the wrong reason. You can take up the means of grace and use them merely to puff up your pride turning the spiritual habits that God has gifted his church for our edification, and we can pervert them and contort them and use them for self-exaltation. It's a huge temptation and risk that we must be aware that our sinful hearts will lean towards. If we take them up with the wrong motives, we become just like the hypocrites that Jesus is warning us about here in Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus, again, he makes it really clear, really clear what is driving the hypocrites. Look at what he says. He says that they may be seen by others. That's why they're doing it. That they may be seen by others. That's a refrain that repeats throughout Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus does so to emphasize the, the vanity of the hypocrites who take up almsgiving, who take up prayer, who take up fasting. Jesus says all of this, all of this nonsense of standing in the street corner, praying at the top of your lungs, all of that is just religious showmanship, pride masquerading as piety. That's all it is, Jesus says. And Jesus says to these hypocrites, the praise of men is what you want, if that is what you're after, that's why you're coming to church, if that's why you are praying, if that is what you want, Jesus says, that's what you'll have. Truly, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They've received it. 
Jesus warns us that we may impress other men and women with our prayers, but we do not impress God. The all-knowing God sees through the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of our charade if we come to prayer with such motives. God alone, of course, can see the heart and the intentions of men. He alone can uncover the motives that no one else can recognize. You might think that you have some sharp discernment, that you can spot a phony from a mile away, but yet even you can be duped. But God cannot. He alone can see the hidden motives and intentions of human beings and the human heart. God is not fooled by hypocrisy. So perhaps all you've thought about with, when it comes to the Christian faith is maybe all you've heard, all you've gotten the impression of is that the Christian faith is all about religious performance. It's all about religious duty as a way in order to appease God, to earn the favor of God in some sense, like so many of these hypocrites here. And if that is you, you have seriously misunderstood the scriptures and the very nature of the gospel. You see, the gospel is not at all about earning God's favor, but it's about being gifted God's favor by grace. We are all hypocrites. Raise your hand, right? This is all of us. We have all fallen short of God's standard. We all deserve God's judgment. And so the solution to our sin is not to become a better religious play actor. Lots of people try that. It doesn't work. Our response should be humility. We humble ourselves. We confess our sin to the Lord. And we receive the free gift of grace found alone in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who dies in the place of sinners. It's only when we repent and put our faith in Jesus that the very aim of prayer begins to change for us. Because no longer do we see prayer as a way to manipulate God, to impress God, but we see prayer as a privilege of God inviting us into his own divine life. That through my union with Christ, I can fellowship with the Lord. He becomes our aim, not other people. And it's only when we repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ can we see prayer as a privilege, not a performance. Only those adopted into God's family can learn to speak to God as a son or daughter and have the high privilege of calling God Abba, Father. I urge you this day, if you are misinformed about what the Christian faith is all about, about what the gospel is, I, I urge you today to become a child of God. Cast aside your phony piety and humble yourself. Humble yourself before God and call out in faith to Jesus to save you from your sins. Then and only then. Will you be able to pray with the right aim? And what is that right aim? What is the proper aim for prayer? To know and enjoy the Lord. To know and enjoy the Lord. That's the only proper aim for the Christian. You see, by Jesus here critiquing the hypocrites, Jesus is showing us what the right aim of prayer is. We pray for God's sake. 
We pray because we love him, because we cherish him. You see, God alone is the proper motive for prayer. We pray to enjoy him, to commune with him, to experience the joys of our fellowship in him. And notice what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus doesn't instruct his disciples to pray. He assumes they will pray. You notice that assumption. But when you pray, when you pray, Jesus assumes that prayer is the instinctive language of the saint, of his kingdom citizen. Of course you're going to pray. Jesus is like, I don't need to tell you to pray. You're a citizen of my kingdom. You pray, right? But when you pray, Jesus says, verse 6, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is emphasizing here the secrecy of prayer. Not to forbid public prayer. I would be in big trouble, right? He's not forbidding public prayer entirely. But he is correcting the distortions of prayer that were so prevalent in the first century. The Christian prays in secret. Why? Because we don't care if anyone's watching. That's not why we're doing it. That's not why we're praying. We don't pray but so, so people will notice us. True piety is not paraded in public, but revealed in private. Anyone can fake it publicly, including pastors. Only those who find joy in God, true joy in God, will shut the door and devote themselves to private prayer. Only someone who is motivated by love for God would do such a crazy thing like secret and private prayer. So Jesus tells his disciples to do just that. This is the aim in which you pray. Christian, shut the door. Pray to your father. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, just as God the Father sees through the phony hypocrisy into the hidden motives of the heart, the Lord also sees what is done in secret. And he rewards his children who come to him eagerly for his own sake to pray to him. You see, if God is the aim of our prayers, then God will be your reward. And this leads to this next section here on the Lord's Prayer. Second point today, the model prayer we see first introduced in verse 7. Jesus takes on Another issue of prayer, starting here in verse 7, which involves this sort of vain repetition of phrases, of empty phrases, the text says. Now, Jesus isn't critiquing the length of prayers. He's not saying all prayers need to be under 30 seconds. That's, that's not what he's doing here. But, but he's also not forbidding the use of liturgical prayers. That's also not what he's doing. What he is critiquing, though, again, in his own culture, in his own day, with these Jewish prayers is the mistaken notion that you can see prayer as some sort of mechanical input, whereby if you say the right thing in the right way and repeat it over and over and over again, God is going to act. He's going to do something if you just brute force your way with the right phrases. You see, Jesus is just outright critiques this sort of mechanical view of prayer that is nothing more than divine manipulation, a sort of prayer that is empty in its content and barren in his love. Jesus says it's not how you ought to pray. 
prayer, Jesus says, isn't this astonishing? Look at what he says. He says, prayer is predicated on the fact that God knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus says, prayer is predicated on the fact that God knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus shows us that prayer is ultimately grounded and rooted in God's sovereignty and goodness. When we lift up our voice to pray to God, he's not ignorant of our needs. It's not as if, okay, well, I'm, thank, thank you for telling me this. I, I needed you to pray that to me or I wouldn't have known. That's No, he says God knows exactly what you need before you even speak a word. He knows the needs upon your heart. You don't pray to God to, to, get, to manipulate him or to inform him about what's going on. That's, that's not the aim or motive of prayer. And Jesus then, in order to help out his kingdom citizens, to help out the Christian, gives us this model prayer as a way of instructing us to pray. It's often called the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer that we're very familiar with. In fact, we're sometimes so familiar with that we fail to grasp the insight and the teaching that Jesus provides us here in this model prayer. And sadly, the Lord's prayer is sometimes abused in such a way, doing the very thing that Jesus is rebuking in the verses prior, right? Like, I, I, heaping up these empty phrases like the Gentile. I, I remember many football games back in high school, right, where the, the team gathered around and stumbled their way through the Lord's prayer, and none understood it. Very few believed it but we heaped up empty, meaningless phrases nonetheless, just like the Gentiles. So the Lord's Prayer can be abused in such a sense, but the Lord's Prayer is a gift. It is a model for prayer, a template for prayer, an outline for prayer, an outline that is teaching us how to pray. So the Lord's Prayer is the preeminent example of how Bible meditation fuels our prayer life. One of the reasons why I've chosen Matthew 6 for this morning. In fact, meditating on the Lord's Prayer as an outline for your prayers, this can be a fruitful habit that many Christians in the past have, have promoted and one that I think many of us neglect. Jesus, in this Lord's Prayer, gives us six petitions. Six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Think of the Lord's Prayer as a six-point outline from which you can use to start and to structure your prayers every single day. So each of these petitions in the Lord's Prayer could be an entire sermon, right? They're that glorious. They're that wonderful. They're that rich. But today I want to help you see that big picture of the Lord's Prayer as a model of help that Jesus is giving us for our prayer. So the prayer opens up with a glorious introduction. One I wish we could squeeze over several weeks, right? But, but look at what it says, our Father in heaven, our Father. What a precious greeting as Jesus invites us to raise our voice to the Lord in prayer. Each word there, our Father, is filled with significance highlighting the, the sort of realities we've been talking about the last few weeks of our union with Christ, that because we are united to Jesus, just as Jesus called God the Father as the divine Son, so too can we, in Christ, use the name Father 
in reference to God. But notice what Jesus says. You don't need to pray to Jesus' Father. You pray to our Father. God is the Father of the Christian. All the intimacy and joy and sweetness that can be squeezed out of the word Father finds its fulfillment in this glorious invitation, this remarkable privilege that the Christian can access God as our Father. And as a Christian, we have that access. So now as we begin to go through the actual six petitions, one at a time in the Lord's Prayer, in this model prayer, you can divide these six petitions, if you'd like, into groups of three, three and three, right? The first three focus on God. The last three focus on our needs. Even in their structure, right? Jesus is teaching us, helping us to ensure that the ultimate aim for our prayers is God. Our prayers ought to be God-centered, focusing first and foremost upon his glory. So let's get into these. We're going to have to do a quick run-through, but let's do a quick run-through of each of these six petitions. First, hallowed be your name. The first petition calls for the name of God to be hallowed. Simply put, hallowed in the original language means to sanctify or to make holy. It communicates this idea of setting apart something or someone as holy. Now, the word hallowed is really difficult for us for several different reasons. First, it's a word we don't use today, right? It's just a strange one. When was the last time you used hallowed in a conversation with your friends? Probably not. Second, holiness itself is a foreign concept in our secular world today. People don't even know what that word means. So what does it mean to make something holy? But then third, even if you do understand something about holiness and what the Bible teaches about it, the word confuses us because after all, isn't God already holy? Why are we praying for God to be holy when he is already holy? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. So what's going on in this petition? Hallowed be your name. We pray then for God's name to be hallowed, not because God is lacking in holiness, but because we fail to recognize his holiness. We fail to recognize it. Think of how you speak about God. And don't we often speak about God with such triteness and glibness? Is God revered in our world today? Is he revered in your life? We don't hallow his name, do we, as we ought. We fall woefully short of ascribing unto God all that he rightly deserves. So the first petition right off the bat is, is pleading that in our lives and in our world that God's name would be recognized as gloriously holy, splendid, majestic, honored. It is a prayer for God's glory and holiness to be seen and known and cherished in your life and in mine and the church and the world. We want God to be valued and treasured. That's what we're praying for. So when we pray this petition, we, we ought to examine ways in which we are failing to rightly fear the Lord, ways in which we are not hallowing the name of the Lord as we ought. And we pray we pray that the world would recognize the beauty of holiness in our God, that he alone is the highest good, 
and the one worthy of worship and praise. The second petition, thy kingdom come. Your kingdom come. The second petition, in a lot of ways, builds upon that first one. We want the name of God to be cherished as holy, and so then we pray that the kingdom of God would advance over the earth. God's name is made glorious as his kingdom spreads on earth as it is in heaven. It pleads that the lordship of God, his reign and rule, would extend over every tribe, every nation, every tongue. It longs to see the church of God strengthened. It longs to see churches planted. It longs to see missionaries sent out. It prays for revivals and to be awakened. Right? This is what we are praying for when we pray for God's kingdom to come, that the gospel would spread to the ends of the earth, that sinners would be saved, that God's rule would be exalted and evident over the cosmos. Third, thy will be done. Thy will be done. The third petition here expresses this resting in the sovereignty of the Lord in our circumstances. You see, as we're praying for God's name to be hallowed, as we're praying for his kingdom to advance, it's this humble recognition here in thy will be done that we realize that God's ways are not our ways. If you haven't learned that lesson, it's a painful one sometimes to learn, but it's a necessary one. God's ways are not our ways, but his ways, the Bible says, are irrefutably good, irrefutably even though we might be experiencing in our lives as we pray, we might be experiencing some trying circumstances, some hard suffering. But we pray with such confidence in God's character and goodness, we pray that the Lord would accomplish his will, not our own. It's this recognition that even though I think I might know what is best, Lord, your will is sovereign and good and will bring you glory. And so, Father, I pray that your name would be hallowed. I pray that the gospel would advance. I pray that your kingdom would come. But, Lord, yet I joyfully submit. I joyfully submit to your sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness over all things. Thy will be done. Martin Luther, the famous German reformer, paraphrased this petition like this. He wrote, grant us grace to bear willingly all sorts of sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, and adversity to recognize that in this, your divine will is crucifying our will. I love that phrase. Help us to recognize, Lord, in all of our suffering, all of our sickness, all of our our tragedies that we face, help us to realize in this adversity that your divine will is crucifying my will. You see, these first three petitions focus primarily on the adoration of God, the praising of God, thanksgiving for God. We must begin our prayers by focusing on God's interests, not our own. Jesus, even in the structure of this Lord's Prayer, is is teaching us something, helping us to to expand the little bubble of our prayers. We just pray for me, myself, and I and help us to see things from God's global cosmic perspective in which he is bringing himself glory through Jesus. So by praying for God's holiness, 
by praying for God's kingdom, by praying for his will to be done, what happens is when we begin to pray for those things, our own self-centeredness begins to get chipped away as it should. And we become more enthralled, more taken up with God's glory being done in our lives. And that leads to the fourth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, as we transition to these last three, we've talked about the first three, from the last three begin to focus on our needs. Now, as we transition to these, it's easy to begin to think through, okay, well, now we can put God's interests aside, and now we can begin to focus on number one, right? We can begin to focus on me. No, that's not what these are doing. These are not self-focused petitions, even though they deal directly with you. You see, the God-centeredness of the Lord's prayer continues throughout the entirety of the Lord's prayer. John Calvin said it this way concerning these last three petitions. He says, we do not bid farewell to God's glory, but we ask only in these last three petitions, what is expedient for him? In other words, we're asking for God to act in our lives for his glory, not for our own. That as we pray for our daily bread, we pray that God would provide for our necessities. And of course, let me remind you, those are necessities, not luxuries. And as we pray our necessities, why do we pray for them? We pray for them so that God's name might be hallowed in our life, that his kingdom might advance, that his will would be done. We, we, we ask that God might provide for our temporal needs so that we might be able to more fully devote ourselves for God's glory, not our own. As we ask the Lord for provision day by day, we do so in the hope that God would sustain our life by his gracious provision so that we can live for him. Fifth petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now this fifth petition asks the Lord for forgiveness, even as we ask the Lord for help in forgiving others. Now this fifth petition is the only one in which Jesus provides additional commentary for after the Lord's Prayer, most directly in verse 14 and verse 15, explaining what exactly does this mean. Now, as we humbly ask God to forgive us of our sins, this is huge in terms of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. Jesus helps us see that forgiveness, if we've really experienced God's forgiveness in our life, then God's forgiveness changes us into people who forgive. That as you've experienced true forgiveness of God humbly before him, then, and in fact, we become the sort of people who forgive Forgive. Remember Matthew 18, right? Later on in the gospel where he's talking about the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? The guy that's forgiven 10,000 talents and then goes chokes another guy because he owes 100 denarii, right? Jesus is helping us see that if you've really experienced the forgiveness of God, you forgive others. And this prayer is asking that that gospel grace that saved us and forgave us would be extended to the people in our lives, that we would forgive our debtors just as God has forgiven us. And so we pray that God would help us to do just that, to extend grace to those who betray us, those who wrong us, those who attack us, that God would bring reconciliation in our personal relationships as we extend forgiveness to others. And then the sixth one here, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This final petition asks that God would protect us, that he would protect us from falling into temptation. Now, 
as Augustine put it, the prayer is not that we should not be tempted, but that we should not be brought or led into temptation. Temptation is a normal part of the challenges we will face as followers of Jesus. But nevertheless, we pray that God would help us in resisting the scheme of the enemy as we pursue righteousness in Christ. Now, that is a very quick run-through of these petitions of this model prayer. And let me remind you, this prayer is intended to be a model. It is a prayer outline that functions as a template for your prayers. That you can take each petition here, one at a time, you can recite it as you pray, meditate upon it for a second, and then pray in light of your present circumstances and the burdens on your heart. For example, as you are praying for the advancement of God's kingdom, going through the Lord's Prayer, you might begin to pray for your church, that God's kingdom would be advanced through Redemption Church. You might begin to pray for several missionaries that you've committed to pray for at this moment. You might feel led to pray for a particular people group around the world that's lost, has no access to the gospel, that God's kingdom would, would spread there. Or, for example, say you're praying on the petition of praying for your daily bread. You pray that God would help you if you've got a pressing financial need, that he would give you wisdom in that, that he would provide so that you might be freed from that concern in order to more fully devote yourself to the Lord. When you're praying, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, you, you ask the Lord, Lord, help me to reconcile and extend forgiveness to this person I'm having conflict with. Right? So the Lord's Prayer, each of these petitions is in some ways a, a launch pad for, for personal and private prayer. And you can go through each petition one by one each day and find that you will have plenty to pray about under each of those categories. Use each line of the Lord's Prayer as a spark for your own prayer. Read the petition, then pray it back to God in your own words through the filter of your own circumstances. Martin Luther, the German reformer again, he encouraged just that. He, in fact, he encouraged this practice every day whenever you begin to pray. Start with the Lord's Prayer. It's a little bit like an on-ramp. When you're dry, when your hard, heart is hard, this is a good way to, to kind of get started in prayer. Use the Lord's Prayer as an outline. And Martin Luther would attest that often he would begin using the Lord's Prayer. And even though his heart was cold pretty soon, the Holy Spirit would spark something in his heart and in his soul. He would be consumed in passion for praying. And pretty soon that prayer would extend a great length of time. Notice the connection in the Lord's Prayer between scriptural meditation and our prayer. You see, the Lord's Prayer is an ideal starting point for the sort of practice of connecting biblical meditation to prayer. So let's go a little bit deeper into the specifics of this. How do we do this more practically? So let's thirdly consider today the practice of prayer. How, now, there, there's a lot we could talk about the practice of prayer. I've often found it so helpful to, to read Christian biographies and learn from men and women of the past, learning and gleaning from their habits of prayer. I've always found that so helpful in terms of learning how to be more diligent in prayer. But today, particularly in light of this view of trying to connect scriptural meditation in our prayer, I just want to give you a few practical helps, uh, five of them in particular. They're going to go quick, okay? So first, 
set a time and a place for prayer. Have a set time, have a set place for prayer. Now, we ought to be praying without ceasing, as Paul says. Prayer ought to be like breathing. It's something we do all throughout the day, but yet it's wise to have a set time and a set place for more extensive prayers. If we wait till we feel like praying, often you will find that days go by before you raise your voice to the Lord. Christians throughout the ages have attested by wisdom and experience the importance of regular set times of prayer. Now, there's no firm rule here. You've got to pray at this time of day based towards Jerusalem or anything crazy like that, right? That's, that's ridiculous. Right? There's no set rule in terms of how to employ this, but yet it's a wise practice uh, that you can employ. So as you grow in your habit of prayer, try to find at least one set time of day. Often this happens when you're intaking the word of God. Sometimes it's called a quiet time, but at least one set time of day where you devote yourself to the practice of private prayer. Now, as you grow, perhaps you can add a second time, maybe a time in the morning and a time in the evening where you devote yourself to the practice of prayer. But along with that set time, it's always nice to have a set place, right? A dedicated place, your sort of own prayer closet, if you will. Now, it doesn't have to be a closet. It can be a a chair. It could be a space in your home. Maybe you've got one of those old living rooms that nobody uses, right? You can go in there and and sit down and, and use it for, for prayer. Maybe it's a, a certain chair you sit in, or, or maybe it's an actual closet. Go for it, right? It doesn't matter where that place is, but having that dedicated place and dedicated time will help you develop the habit of prayer. And like anything, prayer requires some training and some practice. And the more we do it, the more we find not only do we enjoy prayer, but we begin to be more effective at it. So setting a time and place will help you plan to pray. Second. Adjust your posture. Adjust your posture. You see, we are, the God's designed us as unified creatures, which means that our bodily posture can put our souls in a proper posture before the Lord. Getting on your knees and praying to the Lord is not just something children do before bed. It's something that we should take up and do. Because as we adjust our posture, get on our knees before the Lord, bow our heads, Bow our eyes. What is all that for? It's communicating earnest humility before the Lord. And it's reinforcing in our mind that I'm just not on my knees here by my chair for no good reason. I'm speaking to the Lord. There's a seriousness to this task of which I'm getting ready to do. And it reminds you that you are indeed coming into the presence of God when you pray. So consider, you don't have to, but consider adjusting your posture during these set times of prayer. Third, raise your voice. Raise your voice. Now, again, you can certainly pray with your inner thoughts as you go about your day. But for set times of prayer, I I find it best to pray out loud, audibly, with your voice. It helps our mind focus. Right? Often, as we talked about last week with scriptural meditation, our mind wanders. And so when you audibly express your prayers, it helps you to focus. It also helps you to reinforce that you're not just thinking in your head here when you pray. You are talking to someone. You are conversing to a person, the infinite God of the universe. So when you pray in private, find a quiet place and pray audibly. Pray audibly. 
Now, if you can't speak for whatever reason, say you don't have a place in your house where you can really get away and have that sort of privacy, uh, do so in a whisper. And even if you can't voice the words, at least mouth the words as you pray, you'll find that it helps you focus your thoughts and express your, your heart to the Lord as you meditate on his prayer, meditate on his word. And that leads to the fourth one, pray God's word. Pray God's word is what we've been talking about. That our prayer life will be greatly enriched if it is fueled by our meditation on scripture. So pray God's word back to him. Use the Lord's prayer as we just discussed, taking each petition one at a time, or use a passage of scripture that you've been studying and meditate upon it from your Bible reading and then begin to use that passage of scripture as, as fuel to voice your prayers to the Lord. Of course, the Psalms are a wonderful resource for this purpose, as they are the prayers in the Old Testament. Read a verse, read a line from a psalm, and then let the language and the priority of that text begin to inform and direct and shape your prayers to the Lord. And if you learn to pray God's word, you'll notice that a few things begin to happen. One, you will find that your prayers will not be dull. They're not going to be dull. They're not going to be repetitive. They're not going to be boring. Why? Because God's word will continually bring fresh life to your prayers fresh language, fresh priorities, things that you might not think to pray for, God's word is going to uncover and say, wait, hold up, you need to pray for this. It's, it's a beautiful thing. God's word brings constant variety to the language of our prayers. And so using God's word will prevent your mind from wandering. And it has this tendency to make your prayers more about God and less about you as they should. You see, the more you practice praying scripture, you'll find that this scriptural meditation will begin to ignite your heart. This fire will burn in your heart and you'll be consumed by prayer. You won't feel dry and dead as you start to pray. We often feel that way when we do. But before long, as God's word fuels your prayer, praying will, will be that impulsive, instinctive response that the Holy Spirit draws us towards. Now, there are many great men and women throughout church history who have been diligent prayer warriors, but I think few rival the man George Mueller. But interesting thing about George Mueller is George Mueller often struggled with prayer for many years. And it wasn't until he had his breakthrough moments that he began to realize what strengthened his prayers. And it was biblical meditation. He began to make the discovery around spring of 1841 that if he connected and started with Bible meditation, his prayer life took on great power. Let me, let me read for you his own testimony of this. It's a bit lengthy, but I think it's so good it's worth thinking on just a little bit. This is his testimony from one of the greatest prayer warriors in the history of the church. He said this. <coughs> he said, before this time, my practice had been, at least for 10 years previously, as an habitual thing, to give myself to prayer after having dressed in the morning. Now, as I saw, the most important thing was to give myself to the reading of God's word and to meditation on it, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus by means of the word of God, whilst meditating on it, my heart might be brought into experimental communion with the Lord. What does he mean by that? He doesn't mean he's a scientist doing an experiment. 
He's meaning that he has an experience with the Lord. That he's brought into this sense of fellowship with the Lord, this experimental communion with the Lord. He goes on. He says, the result I have found to be almost invariably this, that after a few minutes, my soul has been led to confession or to thanksgiving or to intercession or to supplication so that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer, but to meditation, yet it turned almost immediately more or less to prayer. When thus I have been for a while making confession or intercession or supplication or have given thanks, I go on to the next words or verse, turning all as I go on into prayer for myself or others, as the word may lead to it, but still continually keeping before me that food for my own soul is the object of my meditation. The result of this is that there is always a good deal of confession, thanksgiving, supplication, or intercession mingled with my meditation, and that my inner man almost invariably is even sensibly nourished and strengthened, and that by breakfast time, with rare exceptions, I am in a peaceful, if not happy, state of heart. What is his big discovery here that we're talking about? Well, Mueller realized that Bible reading and prayer are not separate disciplines for the Christian. We talk about them separately. We've done sermons on them separately. But Mueller understood that biblical meditation fuels prayer. Using God's word to fuel your prayer enriches and deepens your prayer. As you begin to meditate on God's word, if you take up this practice, and perhaps some of you have attempted this last week as we've talked about scriptural meditation, you will find that as you do, you can't help but start praying to God as you do it. Meditation and prayer focused on God's word enriches and stimulates the prayer life of the Christian. Finally, fifth, pray until you pray. Pray until you pray. This final counsel for advice comes from the old Puritans. Pray until you pray. And what did they mean by this? Well, they meant that you have to persevere in prayer long enough, long enough to push through the coldness of heart that we all feel when we sit down to pray initially. If the hypocrites in Matthew chapter 6 prayed with these sort of vain, long-winded prayers, Christians today pray with such brevity and infrequency that we disobey the command to pray entirely. You see, we have to devote ourselves to prayer for more than just 30 seconds, more than just a few minutes. Often. It's a few minutes in, sometimes five minutes in, when we really begin to pray to the Lord. You have to to get through your coldness of heart. You've got to push through the formalism. You have to push through those dull affections that you have for the Lord in any given moment. You have to persevere and persist long enough that the Spirit begins to provoke something inside you and your heart begins to truly pray unto the Lord. You see, prayer is not... It's not this duty to perform, but it's a means to enjoy the fellowship we have with God. And sadly, many of us don't pray long enough to begin to feel and to experience the joys of that communion we have in prayer with the Lord. By prayer, we can rest in God's love. Prayer is the means by which we commune and experience the joys of our union with Christ. But yet, as D.A. Carson put it, He said, many of us in our praying are like nasty little boys 
who ring front doorbells and run away before anyone answers. This is often what we do in our prayers. We're playing ding-dong ditch with the Lord of heaven. You see, when you bend your knees in prayer and you commit, I'm having my set time of prayer. This is the time I want to devote myself. I got my place. This is what I'm going to do. I've got my scripture I'm meditating on. Bend your knees before the Lord. Start praying and do not get up until you really pray. Do not get up. Keep praying. Persist in prayer. If your heart's cold, go to God's word. Meditate on the beautiful truths of the gospel to warm up your heart. Pray through the petitions of the Lord's prayer. Just keep praying. Keep praying until you've prayed. May the means of prayer be oxygen for our souls. We need it. May it enliven us and strengthen us. May it cause us to yearn for the Lord and to to cherish more opportunities for prayer. And perhaps today, perhaps your prayer life is so defunct or non-existent that we we really need to do a resuscitation here today, right? We We need to start breathing again. Prayer is a remarkable privilege, church. Remarkable prayer. It's a blessing. It is a gift given to us by Christ. It's a means by which we experience and know the fellowship we have with God through our union with Christ. So today, please don't be burdened with guilt and shame over your lack of prayer. Church, there is grace for you today and every day. Instead, I pray that you sense the wooing of the Holy Spirit drawing you into the intimacy and depth of God's love that you can know through the means of prayer. And so let us take up that means now as we close in prayer. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful that you in Christ have given us this great privilege that we can call out to you as our Father, that you are a God who hears our prayers, who responds to our prayers. Yes, Lord, you are a God who knows what we need before we even ask them. But Lord, we know that through the means of prayer that you change us. Lord, that you help us to be enthralled with your glory and with your goodness. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would jumpstart this breathing again in the Christian life if we've been negligent of it. That we would adjust our methods and begin to use scriptural meditation as fuel for our private prayer. And Lord, if we do this, prayer will will not be boring. But Lord, we will come to you and we will commune with you and you will teach us. You will expose things in our hearts. You will help us to become more committed to your word and to Christ. Lord Jesus, help us to pray. Teach us to pray. Father, I do pray, Lord, for so many here who who may, when they think about prayer, think of it as nothing more than a duty to perform. Lord, as they've thought about prayer, they've thought about it as nothing more than the same way the hypocrites in Matthew 6, where it's all about impressing God, impressing him with earning favor. It's, it's, It's all about showmanship. Father, help them to see that pride leads to destruction. And Lord, I pray that they would be humbled this day. And Lord, that they would first and foremost become your children as they repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. Lord, as we respond today in prayer, Lord, we ask for your help and your guidance that you would work in us, O Spirit, through the means of prayer. 
to renew us and revive us again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.